Those of you who are basketball aficionados, you know that Michael Jordan is widely regarded as the GOAT, the greatest of all time in, in the NBA. Um, and for those of you who are under 20, you may disagree. That's because you didn't get to witness the greatness of Michael Jordan. To give you some context, he was 14-time All-Star. He was uh, 10 times the scoring champion of the league. That means he scored the most points out of 10, 10 years. He was also five times the league MVP, most valuable player uh, voted. And not only that, not only was he the, most, the best offensive player, he even received the award for best defensive player of the year at one point. And, uh, and he's won so many awards. But what cements his place at the very top of the basketball echelon is that uh, his team, the Chicago Bulls, uh, they won the NBA championship six times. In other words, and they did it by doing two three-peats. So they won three years in a row, had to take a breather when Michael Jordan briefly retired from basketball. When he came back, they won it, there was one year of adjustment, then they won another three-peat three years in a row. He felt unstoppable. But in those championships, he never won by himself. In fact, as we go to the next slide, you'll see that he was surrounded by a, car, a cast of other all-stars, and then specialists like our, our very own Steve Kerr, who's currently the coach of the Golden State Warriors. He was just their sharpshooting specialist, and it took a team of people to accomplish these tremendous goals. Likewise, as we look at the passage today, we see that God calls us to a tremendous goal, to repair and redeem the brokenness that we discover in our homes and in our world, and none of us are meant to do it alone. There are no lone rangers in the kingdom of God. And so the question is, how do we work together as a team, as the family of Christ? And so if you have a Bible, you'll want to turn in it to Nehemiah chapter 3. We are in this series called Restore, how we experience restoration by returning to God to rebuild what has been broken. And that when God does his work of restoration, is he doesn't simply replace something. It's not like you get a broken down laundry machine and he just gives you the same one again. But when God rebuilds things in our lives, he builds something new, something better. That is the gospel. That is what Jesus does. And that is what God does to move Nehemiah to the people of, of Israel in their time. And so you might remember that in chapters 1 and 2, Nehemiah, he received this conviction. His heart breaks for the suffering of the people and the city in need of a savior. And then, <coughs> excuse me, and then he assesses the risks involved in this through prayer and planning. And then when God calls him to action, he demonstrates his faithfulness by his readiness, that he's ready for the resistance that he'll face. He's ready with research that he does on the city. He's ready to raise up other people to be involved, and he's ready to respond to the critics. And so now here in Nehemiah chapter 3, he moves from aspiration to implementation. He's cast this vision for the work of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. And remember, we talked about this, not just the physical walls, but the spiritual walls. And we'll talk about that in later chapters. But he cannot accomplish this alone. It requires the tremendous support and work of the people of God together in order for this to happen. And so for us today, when we think about God casting a grand vision to his church for the redemptive work of restoration, in the lives of families, in the lives of cities? What is our response? What is our responsibility? Now, as we read this very long passage this morning, I'm just going to read it all in one chunk. So it's good. We're just going to like, instead of dipping our toe in the water, we're going to jump right into the pool. And so uh, we're not going to 
preach expositorily today, verse by verse. Instead, what I want you to do is hear the whole chapter and listen for the repeated patterns and themes, the gold that God wants us to mine from the text. Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 1. I'm going to do my best with some of these Aramaic and Hebrew names. All right. Then um, Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of uh, Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built, and next to them, Zakur, the son of Imri, built. The son, uh, sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of uh, Berechiah, son of Meshezabel repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Bana, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired. But their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. Joiada, the son of Paseah and uh, Meshulam, this is another Meshulam, the son of Besodea, repaired uh, the gate of Yeshanah. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts and its bars, and next to them repaired. Uh, Melatiah, the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the, I got to take off my glasses, (laughs) Maranathite, the men of Gibeon and of Mizpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them, Uziel, the son of Harhiah, goldsmiths, repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired, and they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, I lost my place. Next to them, Raphiah, the son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them, Jediah, the son of Haramath, repaired opposite his house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashabneah, repaired. Malchijah, the son of Haram, and Hashub, the son of Pahath Moab, repaired another section in the tower of the, of the ovens. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halohesh, ruler of of half the district of Jerusalem repaired, he and his daughters. Hanan and the inhabitants of Zenoa repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it, set its doors, its bolts, and its bars, repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. Malchijah, the son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth Hakaram, repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it, set its doors, its bolts, and its bars, and Shalom, the son of Kolhose, ruler of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt it and covered it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars, and he built the wall of the pool of Shalah of the king's garden as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him, another, and that Hebrew word also means beside him. It's similar to that, the word next to him. After him, Nehemiah, a different Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, ruler of the half district of Bethzer repaired to a point opposite the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool and as far as the house of the mighty men. After him, the Levites, the priests who work in the temple, repaired. Reham, the son of Banai. Next to him, Hashabiah, <laughs> Hashabiah, excuse me, ruler of half the district. It doesn't even matter to you. Ruler of the district of Keilah, required, uh, repaired for his district. After him, their brothers repaired. Bavai, the son of Henadad, ruler of half the district of Keilah, Next to him, Azer, the son of Jeshua, ruler of Mizpah, repaired another section opposite the ascent to the armory at the buttress. After him, or beside him, Baruch, the son of Zabai, repaired another section from the buttress uh, to the door of the house of Eliashib, 
the high priest. After him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, repaired another section from the door of the house of Eliashib to the end of the house of Eliashib. And after him, the priests, the men of the surrounding area, repaired. After them, Benjamin and Nahashub repaired opposite their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Messiah, son of Ananiah, repaired beside his own house. After him, Binui, the son of Henadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress and to the corner. Halal, the son of Uzai, repaired opposite the buttress and the tower projecting from the upper house of the king at the court of the guard. After him, Padiah, the son of Perosh, and the temple servants living on Ophel, repaired to a point opposite the water gate on the east and the projecting tower. After him, the Tekoites repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. You guys hanging in there okay? So what's happening here is they started repairing from the top of Jerusalem. They're going across the west side, and they're working. He's listing everybody's working all the way around the east side. So we're on the east side, so we're nearing the finish line. Okay, above the horse gate, the priests repaired, each one opposite his own house. After them, or beside them, Zadok, the son of Emir, repaired opposite his own house. After him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah, and Hanun, the sixth son of Zalaf, repaired another section. After him, Meshulam, another Meshulam, uh, the same one as uh, earlier in verse uh, 4. The son of Berechiah repaired opposite his chamber, or his home. And after him, Malchijah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants, opposite the muster gate, and to the upper chamber of the corner, and between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. Whew! All right. So we're back from, started from the sheep gate, worked all the way back around. I know. Painful. You know, uh, I know how to show you a good time, don't I? Like, usually you don't get drowsy until the last 10 minutes of the message. Today, we'll just skip to the first 10 to help put you to sleep. But actually, there are a lot of really important spiritual truths that we want you to glean from the text this morning, from this passage. And what we want to do is start by focusing on the big picture. And so the main idea of this text is that the Lord uses Nehemiah to move people from concerned crowd to committed team for the work of rebuilding lives and cities together. That's the big picture. That's what's happening here. And why we talk about this way, a concerned crowd and a committed team, is because even in the kingdom of God, whenever there's a major movement or a major uh, project that needs to be done, there's always two groups that are interested in something like this. One is a crowd of observers, and the other is a team of supporters. And the question is, what is the difference between those two? And so we see that with a crowd of people who are curious and concerned, they're often quick to comment or to criticize. Why are you spending so much on that wall? Why are you so cheap with that wall? I don't like the materials. I don't like that design. And what we find with the crowd is they may care about the work genuinely, but not enough to pick up a shovel or a hammer to help. But here in the text, what is the key phrase that we hear repeated again and again and again? Next to him, uh, beside him, or after him, they repaired. Yes, they built, they repaired, they, they uh, uh, built things up. And so the picture that, that, the, that Nehemiah paints for us is these rows and rows of individuals and families standing next to each other, shoulder to shoulder, all of them working together as a committed team in God's work of repairing, rebuilding, and restoring. And what I love about this passage is that as the work begins, it's not just about Nehemiah. In fact, he himself is not in the text. The Nehemiah that's mentioned is another person. 
<coughs> excuse me, but instead he names 38 individuals, 42 different groups of people working on 45 sections of the wall and repairing 10 of the gates of Jerusalem. It's all hands on deck. And I don't know if you notice in the text, men and women, sons and daughters, rich and poor, priests and politicians. God calls all of his church, God calls all of his people to the work of rebuilding for the glory of God and for the good of all. And so the starting point here is that when Jesus calls his followers, calls us to his redemptive work of rebuilding lives and churches, families and communities, are you part of the concerned crowd or the committed team? Where is Jesus calling you to get off the sideline and onto the field, to stand shoulder to shoulder next to others, to repair, to rebuild, to restore? So I want you to be thinking about that this morning. Am I on Jesus' committed team? Now, for some of us, the question is, yes, great visions, our, our church locally, little c, big, big church, capital C, globally, lots of visions, but but. What about if the vision for God's people is not my personal conviction? I like my little circle of things. You know, this is what God has called me to, and there's this big, broad world, uh, maybe a big vision that God has gift gifted the church. But what if that's, I'm not gifted in that area? Or what if I don't live in that area? And what we see in this passage is that there's many people who are skilled in construction, but did you notice several surprising people who appear, who are recorded in this rebuilding process? In verse 8, they have goldsmiths, people who work with jewelry and metalwork. But goldsmiths are not the same as people who are in construction, like doing ironwork. They also have perfumers, guys who run the perfume counter at Macy's, and they're also there doing the hard work as well. Verse 12, I mentioned already, it's not just sons, but the daughters of Shalom are involved in the rebuilding, even though women in the ancient Near East were not trained in construction, were not employed in construction. So people who don't have the skills, the training, the ability of construction are involved in the rebuilding process. And did you also notice they also record in the passage where people are from? In other words, there's Jediah in verse 10, Benjamin, Hashub, Azariah in verse 23 and 24, the priests, Zadok and Meshulam in verse 29 through 30. All these groups of people, they were all working on the wall right across the street from their own home. Like, did you catch that? Like, if they would say they were building the wall right across right, uh, uh, where their house was. And that makes sense because uh, Nehemiah assigns people to repair, uh, do repairs to residents where they live in the city, right? Doesn't that make perfect sense? Um, they have a personal investment, right? I can serve God and help in the rebuilding of my own neighborhood. But did you also notice there are these various groups of people, like in verse 5, people from the town of Tekoa, verse 7, people from the town of Gibeon and Mizpah, verse uh, 14 through 16, people from Beth Macaram and Beth Zur. These are all towns and cities that are outside of the city of Jerusalem. In other words, it's neither at their community or at their convenience to come to work on this wall. And yet, they recognize God's calling for them and God's blessing for other people through them. So many of them back then, they're serving the Lord outside of their ability and their geography. And what I want to propose to you is that when God casts a vision for his people, he calls us all to serve regardless of our comfort zone. 
In other words, there's times that God will call you to help out in something restoring, maybe a marriage couple or, or a church project or something like that, but it's within your skills and your schedule. But other times, God calls us to get involved even when it's beyond our capability or our convenience. I think about our after-school program that launched two weeks ago. And what I admire most about the volunteers is that most of them are not uh, first, first generation born in America. They're not native English speakers. And so they're first generation immigrants and they're trying to teach uh, kids in our community how to read in English, obviously. And I know some of the volunteers have talked to me how intimidating that is for them. But they sense the calling of Jesus to love and serve God by loving and serving these kids. And what we find is that as people are volunteering, moving out of their comfort zone, that God is turning their faithfulness into fruitfulness. As we see real progress, even in just picking up basic ABCs in the past two weeks. And in fact, one of the richest blessings that I experienced this morning was seeing one of the families that comes to our reading program, a neighborhood family, and they showed up at church this morning, brought their kids to the kids program, and one of our volunteers walked them upstairs to that, outside of their comfort zone, even language-wise. And so I want you to be thinking about where's God tapping on your heart to get involved in the redemptive work of restoration? even if it's beyond your capability or your convenience or your comfort zone. Okay, so maybe th some things, you know, not within my skill set or my wheelhouse, but maybe God is moving me out of my comfort zone. But what if, what if I'm much more of a manager than a, a worker? In other words, like I'm better at kind of telling people what to do than, than, than maybe standing there and doing it myself. Did you notice in the te text, who is the first in line to do the work? Verse 1, the high priest. And then he brings all the other priests. And they build the gate and they bless the gate to the glory of God. And then they're joined by the rest of the spiritual leaders in Jerusalem in verses 19 and 22. All these priests and Levites, they all come to do the work. What they don't do is they don't stand in the back and tell the workers, we'll pray for you while you guys do the work. They pick up their tools and they get their hands dirty and they do the work alongside everyone else. And it's not just the spiritual leaders. In verses 9 through 19, they're joined by eight political officials. They call them rulers. You'll notice throughout the text that word is repeated many times, the ruler of such and such district. These are eight political officials uh, from within the city of Jerusalem as well as from the surrounding cities of Jerusalem who all come, they bring their team, and they're working alongside the people. But did you catch? I kind of emphasized it the way I was reading that notable exception in verse 5, that amongst the nobles of Tekoa, it says in verse 5, they would not stoop to serve the Lord. They wouldn't bend their knee. They wouldn't bow their heart. They wouldn't lift their hands to serve God because they considered this kind of manual labor beneath them. Why do they respond differently than other leaders? You know, in life, there's two types of leadership. You have people who are generals and people who are shepherds. And what I mean by that is generals are generally respected for their authority and their strategy, and the, they're the ones who can make the hard decisions, even if it, there's a, a high human cost to it. And so I think about someone like uh, back in World War I, Sir Douglas Haig, he's the field general of the British forces in northern France. And on the morning of July 1st, uh, 1916, he ordered 110,000 infantry to go attack the Germans. And within a few hours, there were 60,000 casualties. That's over half of his force wounded. 
And in fact, 20,000 of them lay dead or dying in the trenches for days. And they ordered this attack without gaining a single objective that day. They didn't achieve anything that day. Another perspective on that, a different general, different war general, William Sherman, he was the commander of the US Army uh, during the Civil War. He's quoted as saying, I regard the death and the mangling of a couple thousand men as a small affair. And so generals, they think big picture. They're willing to lose smaller battles to win the war, and they have to be desensitized to sacrificing countless soldiers on the front, on the front lines, while they, the generals, operate safely from the back. What I mean is they're removed from the battle so that they can design the plans in their headquarters uh, because they want to ultimately win the war. On the other hand, the Bible describes uh, leaders in a much different way as shepherds, and it's a very different model. In the ancient Near East, you know, shepherds, they just kind of walk along with their sheep, but when there's uncertainty, when there is risk, shepherds walk in front of the flock with their rod and their staff. Why? Because they're in the front to seek out a safe path or still waters, to defend against predators, even when it's costly or dangerous to themselves. You see, generals lead from the back, but shepherds lead from the front. And so Jesus, as the ultimate example, as he prepares to go to the cross, he will offer to lay down his life as a sacrifice for our sins, leading from the front. And even as he prepares to do so, he's preparing his disciples, who will one day become shepherds and leaders when he's gone. And he says to them in John 15, verses 12 to 13, my command to you is this, that you would love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. So leading is not just about giving out direction, but living out example. It's the humility to love and serve and sacrifice for the glory of God and for the good of others. And so what we also see in this passage is that God calls leaders to humble themselves and set an example from the front of the line, not the back. So, those of you who have some influence, those of you who are in a position of leadership, are you more general or shepherd? Are you willing to get your hands dirty to do the work as an example of godly humility and sacrifice, just like Jesus has done for us? Or do you tend to avoid the hard work, like the Tekoite nobles that we see in verse 5? If you are a leader, I want you to know it is impossible to lead. It's impossible for someone to follow you to where you yourself are unwilling to go. And so we need to lead by example. We need to lead from the front. And I want to say that it's not just what you do as a leader, but it's also how you do it. That as we serve alongside others, especially if you've uh, been called to, to do more or to do harder things, are you characterized by complaint? Do you grumble a lot? Or, like Jesus, do you do everything without grumbling and without arguing? Philippians chapter 2, verse 14. Leaders lead from the front by their example, not just in their work, but also in their integrity and in their attitude. Okay convicting for me personally, but, but 
What if other people aren't doing their fair share? What if there's more work to be done than there's people or resources available? Now, in verse 5, we met the Tekoites, not the nobles. I'm talking about the Tekoite people, the people from the, 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 reach, the city of Tekoa. They came outside of Jerusalem. They come and they repair the wall. And then we meet them again in verse 27. We see them also rebuilding another section of the wall. So we catch them at the beginning, repairing some, some of the wall, and Nehemiah lists da, 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 all these people. And then we come back around, and oh, look, here's that group again. And they're repairing another section in verse 27. And the same happens with Meshulam. There's a couple of Meshulams, but the Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, we meet in verse 4, repairing the wall, and then his group and his family, they move on to verse 30. They're, they're repairing another section of the wall after they're done with this section. They do double the work of other groups. Now, you see, everyone chips in, but this is backbreaking work. I want you to get a sense of what this wall is like. It is 15 feet thick. This is not your wall at home with a little bit of drywall and stuff like this. This is a 15-foot thick stone wall that they are repairing. And yet, there's people like in verse 13, Hanun and his team. They do exceedingly more than others. It says that in verse 13, he repaired 1,000 cubits of wall. That doesn't mean anything to you. Put it this way. A cubit is about 18 inches. Two cubits is a yard. And so 1,000 cubits is 500 yards. In other words, he repaired about five football fields worth of wall. If you line up five football fields together, and so the point here in this, also in this passage, is that God calls some to humbly give more than others. God calls all of us to do the work, and God calls leaders to set the example, but God calls some to humbly give more than others. For some of you, God has given you more time and resources, more energy and flexibility, and so you give and serve according to your capacity and the calling that God has given you. Now, what's interesting about this passage is there's times that you have to do more work, and then there's times that you have to do worse work. I mentioned in verse 13, Hanun, he's like the energizer battery. They, they built, like they just kept going and going and going and built a thousand cubits of the wall until they came to the dung gate. And then he said to his family, let's just call it a day. And it smells and feels exactly as it sounds. Like, you have all these other gates, the sheep gate, the horse gate, you know, these nice gates, the water gate, and then you come to the dung gate. And uh, what it is, is they would shovel the refuse, the dung, the leftovers from animal sacrifices, all the offal, uh, out through this gate to, be to the city dump in the Hinnom Valley, and then they would set it on fire. They would burn it there. So this place is a literal dumpster fire. Himon, the Himon Valley is also known as Gehenna in the Bible. Jesus uses the picture of the stench and the smoke and the fire in this dump as an illustration of hell in Mark chapter 9. So, no one wants to spend weeks or months or a year working on the dung gate. The fumes and the stench and the sting in your eyes is like being in a sewage treatment plant. But in verse 14, Malchijah, who's an official, he's a politician, and his team, they're coming from another city. They're not locals even in Jerusalem. They raise their hands. We'll do it. We'll take the dung gate. As God calls us to rebuild our lives and our cities together, the reality is the size of your plate is limited. We each have a different capacity. But God has given you some capacity, and so he wants to give you a conviction. 
You don't have to do everything, but everyone can do something. Now, some of us, God has given us more time and energy, more resources and flexibility, or maybe God has given you more difficult and less pleasant task, like the dung gate, and we give and serve joyfully according to the capacity and the calling God has given to you. It reminds me of uh, many years ago, we used to take our youth group on missions to Mexico this, this, uh, through this organization called Yugo. And what happens is you'd have not just your church, but multiple youth groups uh, would come, and they would all be sent out to different villages uh, to, to do uh, ministry and do like a vacation Bible school programs for kids and sports camps, etc. But, but all these groups would all stay from these different churches in one campsite. Now, on the last day, Every group was assigned final chores because, like, so it's a week-long trip, and then every group to clean up has to do all these chores before they leave to prepare for the incoming group that's com- coming in the, f- the next week. Um, so this happened every summer. And uh, for those who are assigned final chores, uh, whoever is last to lead, last to leave, excuse me, the campsite, one of their final chores that's assigned to their group is, includes cleaning the bathrooms. Now, you have to understand, these are shared communal bathrooms, so there's a Big bathrooms for women and uh, multiple bathrooms for, for, for uh, men. And after seven days, I want you to consider of seven days of teenagers and young adults who aren't so careful about what they put in their mouth or what comes out of the body. Uh, they've been gorging themselves on unfamiliar cuisine. Some of them had many stomach aches. They left a mess in the bathrooms. To give you an example, five out of eight of the toilets were clogged in the women's bathroom. A literal dung gate. And we were the last church to leave. <laughs> so, uh, one of our high school boys, he was dismayed to find that he had signed up for the cleaning of the bathroom. He didn't understand the scope of the task or how disgusting it would be, and he was very upset about having signed up for that. Now, the team leader of our missions team, he could have assigned other kids, other students to help, but he's no general. Instead, he volunteered to partner with this young boy so that the two of them would clean the bathrooms together. And he did it with a joyful spirit. He was singing pop songs to get this kid's uh, mood elevated. He was cracking jokes. And what they would do as they're cleaning the bathrooms is to make sure that the job doesn't just get done, but it gets done well. He told this young man he wants the bathroom spotless, that it would be a blessing for the next group of churches coming in. And it left a profound impact on this young man who learned to adopt that attitude for himself. It's actually one of the things he tells me that he keeps that uh, that that. that a mission trip in his mind uh, as he goes through life because now he l- has learned to give more when he can when he's called and to lead by example from the front. As God calls you to rebuild and restore in people's lives and in our world, are you willing to humbly give more than other people when God calls you to, when God makes you capable? Last observation. Now, This passage names 38 individuals, 42 different groups of people. And when Jesus casts a great vision for us, for his people, why do we serve and sacrifice? Obviously, to honor God and to bless others. And yet, we see in the word of God that he also honors all who serve in his restoration work. Regardless of if people working on the wall were priests or politicians, whether they were rich or poor, whether they were residents or immigrants to Jerusalem, regardless of who did more work and who did less work, God honors them all 
so much so that their names get recorded forever in the Bible. That's pretty good, right? You're going to meet people in heaven someday like, hey, man, I'm in the Bible. (laughs) You see, our Heavenly Father, He has his eyes focused on the mission, on the vision. He wants to redeem and restore people. And yet, he also has his eyes on his children, whom he loves. He knows when you take hits. He knows when you make sacrifices. And he honors you. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. You know, you've heard me share a few times how surreal it's been this past year and a half preaching here at this church. When everything was shut down, I was, for a year and a half, I was uh, in here preaching just into a camera that was set up right on a table in front of me, alone in an empty church. There was nobody else here at church on Sundays except for me. And yet that's not an accurate picture of what was really happening. You see, there was a team standing next to me, shoulder to shoulder, at least virtually, spiritually, and faithfully men and women who caught a vision from the Lord to bring people together to worship God online every week. And just as God honors these people in the past, he honors those who have been rebuilding the wall over this past two years. And so I'm going to ask them to stand so that we can recognize them. And so, first of all, our worship arts core, like all I see when I'm looking into this, sometimes my iPhone is a little Zoom meeting. And all I see are the AV people and the worship team people. I don't know what's happening. Nobody could be watching the message other than them, as far as I knew. And so from our worship arts core, I would like Alan Zhu to stand, Andrew Lau, Kevin Wang, and Mindy Liang. I want you all to stand up. Stand up. And stay standing. Stay standing. Because stay standing. Uh, I also want to recognize... Uh, first of all, for their effort and ingenuity to connect us with Jesus through music. But not just them. I want them to stay standing. There was also a tech team who works behind the scenes. You never saw their faces on Sunday. You might see some of these worship leaders in their room playing their instrument, and as well as me preaching from church. But who you didn't see were men who were constantly at work every week uh, beside me, standing shoulder to shoulder, uh, doing all the work. And so I want uh, Kelvin Young, if you're here to stand, Benji Tang to stand, and Benson uh, in the back, if you would stand up as well. They worked behind the scenes. They managed the worship Zoom so that the worship leaders and I could actually connect with you. They did all the slides and videos. They managed the live stream broadcast. They, and then they would spend time troubleshooting with me every single week. And the Lord honors them and honors their sacrifice. So would you join me in appreciating them and encouraging them? Okay, I know they don't want to stand up. You guys can take a seat. Thank you, though, men and women who, and not just them, there's many other people, like all the worship team members who would record themselves and, and uh, send those videos to Kevin, and, and they would compile them. And so we have these really creative things that happen. Uh, people like Kevin Zhang, who, who would come here and fix, like when, I, when my camera wasn't working right, he would come in during the week. There's so many people who, were, who touched what was happening here, a team working together to rebuild the walls. And I want to ask you if you're willing to join them. Now that our church has fully reopened, there's much rebuilding to be done. And I don't just mean the new building outside or or cleaning up our campus, which has been trashed over the last two years. God calls us to bring restoration to families, to cities. There are broken 
marriages, people with broken finances, people who have broken education, broken life situations, all in need of men and women that Jesus is sending to rebuild into his kingdom. And so we're desperate for volunteers in our kids' ministry on Sundays. We're desperate for more volunteers to deliver groceries uh, to needy families in our community. We serve over 30 families regularly. Every month receive groceries from our church, and we don't have enough drivers. We need volunteers to tutor our kids, the kids who are coming, in math and reading. I shared a, a quick story with you this morning. There's 18 of them, and I shared last week that the majority of them, there's only three kids, I think, that are from our church, four kids from our church. The rest are not from church, and the majority of them are from our local community, unchurched. And we need people to help. We need you to help us bless the Burbank school and community. When we do this Harvest Festival, it's not just, you know, a, a fun Halloween event. It is us tangibly bringing the love of Christ to people who never set foot in this church. And every year we do it. Every year we put, we deposit seeds of the gospel to let People know, families and, uh, from the Burbank community know there's a God in heaven who loves them. And we love it when their kids start to come and join our church and they, they participate in our ministry. Uh, the kids who came um, to the, the homework club who are upstairs this Sunday attending class for the first time uh, help us to reach those Burbank kids. And not just them. There are marriages, there are parents who are exhausted and broken over this past year of being stuck at home. Like I shared in the message last Sunday, it, we, sheltering in place didn't do us any favors. For some, it just exacerbated the issues and the problems at home. And so there are families and marriages and parents who are broken coming out of this long season who could use your friendship, who could use your prayer, who could use your support. And so I want to ask you, where is Jesus calling you to stand shoulder to shoulder next to others? Even if it's beyond your capability, even if it's beyond your comfort zone. Where is Jesus calling you to lead by example from the front with humility and sacrifice like Jesus? And if God has given you the capacity and the calling, will you cheerfully give more than others to encourage others when it's necessary. My prayer for you is may you participate in the rebuilding, the redeeming, and the restoring of lives and cities out of the overflow of the grace, the restoration, the redemption that Jesus has poured into you. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for taking a challenging passage, but all of your word is useful for instruction, for rebuking, for correction, for teaching. And so, God, we thank you this morning for the ways that you are speaking to our hearts and lives, that we took your word and allowed it to speak to us about how you are calling us to be involved in your kingdom, to be involved in your redemption work, to be rebuilders. And so, Lord, would you call us this morning? Would you speak to us? Whatever area that we need to hear from, whether we have ignored the vision that you've been giving your people, your church, recognizing that all of us are called. Maybe we are leaders who have been good at directing others, but we haven't done the work, haven't dirtied our own hands. Help us to humble ourselves, lead by example. And sometimes, Lord, we recognize that others don't have as much time or energy or resource. Maybe we are that person you call to do more. But whatever the case, as you call us out of our comfort zones, May we know that 
you are honored, others are blessed, and that you see what we do, you honor us. And that we have already received our great reward in Jesus, our salvation forever, that this is just icing on the cake. So we love you, and we praise you, in the name of Jesus.